the region has one of the longest road travel time between countries. So the free trade agreement and you know this coastal highway, um, this passport system, the current the um, common currency regime, those are regional steps. But the, you know the, the process is is being impeded because of colonialism. So we're still in this colonial mentality about how we operate on the continent. If the African Union cannot be as independent and operate financially independent by itself, how can you talk about an agenda that is so aspirational about the Africa that we want? Because Europe has an influence in it. America has an influence in it. Because that's the influence they want on the continent. For the last five years, Nigeria have invested $4 billion in importation of vehicles. For five years, every single year, over $4 billion just on vehicles alone. Only 3% of that is, is invested locally. And we create all these distractions. And then after the conflict, so difficult to build back. Liberia is still struggling right now to, to rebuild since the conflict has been over. It's been close to 20 years since we ended the war. So West Africa is a hotbed for IFF, illicit financial flow. There's a, a report out there that at least $50 billion of illegal financial flow happens on, on, on the continent every year. Think about it, $50 billion every year. Ghana and Africa Coast, I'm talking about the entire world, just those two countries has more than 50% of the market of cocoa. But they cannot detect the price of cocoa on the international market. We've been following the trends of development in Africa and how the African Union is doing and its other sub-regional uh, development and economic, I would say, delegations, although they are independent on their own. The point today is to see and discuss with Maurice Krumer about sustained peace and development, a regional analysis within ECOWAS. To start, Maurice, please tell me who you are, what you do. Thank you very much, Leo, for having me. I am so excited to talk about the issues on the continent. Um, it's, it's an honor. I am um, a graduate student at Brandeis University pursuing a double degree in sustainable international development and also conflict resolution and coexistence. Before Brandeis, I, I worked for the government of Liberia for six and a half years in different positions. I started off as a pillar technical advisor, but that role is just basically to advise the Minister of Finance on cross-cutting issues, issues that the government doesn't usually pay attention to, to bring it to the fold. Um, so I was basically focused on communities that were marginalized, disabled communities, um, young people from different, you know, sectors, whether it's um, drug issues and um, violence and stuff like that. And then I moved up to being an assistant director and then eventually became the director for the, the unit. And then in 2018, I, I resigned and I moved back to the U.S. because I wanted to sort of put the theoretical knowledge to the practical experience that I had. So let's start our discussion analyzing the comparative economic growth data of West African countries of the past decade. I know you've been digging into this for many of your research purposes. Yes. West Africa is 
it's, it's about 400 million people, which is about 5% of the population of the world. And 60% of those people in West Africa are young people. And yet, most of the poor people in the region, are, they're young. No one or many of them are faced, you know, on this huge risk of getting on the Mediterranean, you know, to travel migration because the opportunities on the continent are very small. Most of the countries are poor. Um, most of the, the countries are faced with, you know, diseases and, you know, lack of healthcare, education, lack of security. So young people always have a drive to grow. And so they usually take up this huge risk of getting on the Mediterranean to travel to Europe and, and America seeking better opportunity. Evidently, there are prospects and there are opportunities for growth. Mm-hmm. However, there are barriers that must be seriously considered. Availability of electricity is a key component to the barrier of growth. Most of you know, our countries in West Africa lack electricity. Um, Nigeria is the super, is considered the superpower of West Africa. Only 40% of the people in Nigeria have access to public electricity. Um, so it tells you how important, you know, power is. Another serious uh, barrier to growth is road infrastructure. Um, we have serious issues with roads in West Africa. Um, the bulk of the nations in West Africa don't have passable roads. Um, at least 40 to 45% of the roads are roads that, that are passable. The rest of it, people have to you know, manage their terrible rules, conditions in the country. So in those countries, the other barrier to growth is the long and drawn out border and custom processes, including formal and informal checkpoints that are in those countries. Mm. Would, you, would you like to explain a little bit on, on that? What I'm saying basically are these are the things that are holding back the economic growth of the region. So the reason West Africa is struggling is because there's no access to electricity. There's, you know, the roads are terrible. And then you have these countries where there are checkpoints and custom processes that are take, that takes forever to get, you know, commodities from one country to another to get people moving freely. But let me state here for this interview purpose that there's, there's been some progress. West Africa introduced what they call the ECOWAS passport. So the ECOWAS passport is every every country in the region are required to have the ECOWAS passport, and that passport have allowed people to move in those in those different countries easily by by flight. But if you're going by road, you still have those barriers, those you know impediments that are you know impeding um, economic growth. There are issues. So the region has one of the longest road travel time between countries. Only 40% of the roads in the region are possible. The other barriers to growth is the long drawn out border and custom process, including formal informal checkpoints in country. In 2018, the Trade Facilitation West Africa program was developed with the hope of accelerating movement and trade between countries. That last aspect I would like to point out is, the, is that most of the poor people in the region are essentially disconnected from the state. So, so I, you know, when you look at the poorest people in West Africa, they live in rural communities. Mm. They are subsistence farmers. They are the small farmers. The state usually is basically present 
in big cities and big capitals. That's where you find the courtrooms, you find the police officers, you find these different state institutions. But if you go into the rural areas in West Africa, you barely find, you know, a police officer or a courthouse. You barely find somewhere where somebody can take a complaint. Normally, it is, you know, traditional chiefs and, you know, paramount chiefs and clans that will, you know, adjudicate cases, but they don't have the political authority or the, you know, strong authority to implement some sort of, you know, harsh sentencing. You you mentioned a few few aspects there that I think it would be worth to dig um, a bit more. How does then the current scenario speak for the regional integration project in the benefit of the African people? These ones that you are referring to, that well, the, the poorest ones who live in the, where there there's, there are no um, state services available. So I mean, regional integration is a is is a great opportunity for the continent overall and extremely beneficial to West Africa. I believe some of some of that has started already with the regional passport that I just talked about in West Africa, a unified regional currency named ECHO. So ECHO also was trying to introduce a single currency regime for all the West African countries, but there are challenges, and I'll talk about that just in a little bit. Um, there have been serious roadblocks of that. These soft policy issues are gradually creating opportunity to dismantle the colonial borders uh, that have stifled, you know, development across the region. Um, but, you know, we'll talk about the whole colonial thing, you know, later on too. Additionally, the process has also led to key infrastructure projects, including, you know, Trans-West Africa Coastal Highway. Um, there is a, a coastal highway that has been built between Burkina Faso and Mali. That is, you know, going to cross over several countries, I think about 12 countries. And the hope is that, you know, with the highway trade is going to increase, you know, among those countries. There is a free trade agreement that will open huge market for the over 1.3 billion people living on the continent. So the free trade agreement and, you know, this coastal highway, um, this passport system, the current, the um, common currency regime, those are regional steps that are taken to, you know, sort of bring the people back together. But the, you know, the, the process is, is being impeded because of colonialism. So, for example, the French West African countries and the Anglophone West African countries are two blocks that are mm-hmm. clashing over who gets what and how is that authority being, you know, configured out. It's, it's, it's a, it's a tug of war. That's how I will call it. Um, so when you go to these, you know, conferences and these meetings to talk about common currency, you have challenges. So Senegal and Ivory Coast, for good reasons, are have high, you know, um, growth prospects. Every year they report around six to eight percent, you know, economic growth. So they feel they have some sort of authority on deciding how this common currency should be, you know, arranged. Then you have Nigeria, that is, you know, the most populous country in, in the region, but also the, the godfather of the region who feels, you know, that they should be able to want to make the decision. Then you have a country like Liberia, where I come from, that have already have two currency in the market, the Liberian dollar and the U.S. dollars that are, you know, interchangeably used in the market. How do you figure all this together to decide how do we use, you know, common currency across the region? You have Guinea, that is also a Francophone West African country, but... It's not using the currency that Senegal and Africa are using. They're having their own independent currency. 
so there there are different you know complexities of this issue but overall i think um i think you know the sites are in the right direction i think we at some point we'll get to you know a common ground that all of the west african countries will kind of agree on to make progress at least we have a passport now that we can use across you know the region yeah well these are um, great remarks i'm, I'm not just provoked to a pinpoint from uh, you, you mentioned earlier but uh, the the problem with the public infrastructure the roads and yes. uh, you also mentioned the good the good news about the regional passport that's in place yeah. despite the the customs uh, the stop the blockages along the road now you let me wonder what current factors would you then argue that are critical for poverty reduction? That's an excellent question. Um, so the way I perceive the African continent when it comes to economics, it, it seems, I told you already about the colonialism, but also the... Now you said we'll talk about it later. Yeah, 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 <laughs> I'll, I'll come to that. <laughs> okay. But the way economics work in Africa is that most of us rely on this sovereignty. You know, every country is a sovereign country. We decide how we do business. And we go to China, we go to Europe, you know, come to America. For the last five years, Nigeria have invested $4 billion in importation of vehicles. For five years, every single year, over $4 billion just on vehicles alone. Do you know how much, how much, how much of that is invested on the continent locally? Only 3%. Oh, gosh. Only 3% of that is, is invested locally. So you have a, you have all of these African countries that are, you know, importing different goods and services, but they are coming from outside of the continent. So most of our money is going outside, $560 billion every year that is going outside to these different, you know, these different countries. What if we start to do business among ourselves? The free trade, the whole idea about the free trade is to be able to do business among African countries so that some of that currency can flow between us and also create opportunities so that young people don't get on the ship and go to the Mediterranean and go to Europe or go to America. You see what I'm saying? So we create opportunities so young people can stay on the continent and they can work and we can create opportunity for them. However, the risk is that all the challenges that we're facing with that is that we don't have the public infrastructure to deliver these goods and services. I see Rwanda is doing very good. Rwanda just started a cell phone company, you know, that they're manufacturing cell phones and they're doing laptops and stuff. Very good idea. I won't see that, you know, happening across. Imagine if countries like Malawi or, you know, Gambia or, you know, wherever, Liberia, can start to grow um, pineapple, mango, oranges, and prepare them for the market, for the Afri just the African market. We create, because agriculture is our competitive advantage, West Africa, mm -hmm. not West Africa alone, Africa as a whole. We have the land, we have the, you know, too many young people that are struggling to make it. So if we have the land and we have the hemo, the hemo body. Yeah, but no, nobody wants to be a farmer anymore. So we have to create the incentive for them to be farmers. We have to create that incentive. If you, if you show a young man in Africa that this is a farmer who is a millionaire, that the government or, you know, the African Union or ECOWAS 
gives him $65,000 to $100,000 every year as subsidy for the farm that he's making to get his product from the farm to the market, it creates an incentive for someone to go to the farm and do something because they want to get that same opportunity. The reason farming is not attractive on the continent is because our governments are still relying on development assistance and development aid to provide opportunities for those countries. Well, you know, um, uh, Maurice, you, I know you as a perfect manager and when you speak, <laughs> <laughs> when you speak, you, you carry that charisma in you. And <clears throat> let me not get distracted mm -hmm. to one of the key issues that uh, keeps me also concerned with our, our home continent, conflicts. Yes. Conflicts. Yes. Because it looks like what you have been presenting of course, not necessarily as easy solutions, but it, it sounds like once the roads are built, everything will be okay. Once a farmer gets subsidies, everything will be okay. But here, as, as a conflict resolution and development specialist, how would you then map the conflict dynamics of the region that you think would undermine this whole development process? Conflict is also one of, one of the, the barriers to our you know, ambitious economic growth. Because most of our borders are volatile. Most of our citizens are poor and so they're vulnerable to being recruited into these different military groups and rebel, rebel, um, fashions. Um, so conflict is definitely, definitely a problem. Um, the region has seen some major conflicts taking place. Rebellion and coup d'etat has taken place in Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, Nigeria. And the overall number of organizations involved in violent acts almost doubled from 604 in 2009 to 1,199 in 2019. So imagine we went from, we went from 604 different organizations in, in conflict in 2009 to almost 1,200 um, different parties. The data include Libya, however, um, but it's just, you know, one, one, different countries outside of the West African region. These conflicts pose great risk. So some of the investment opportunity we talked about earlier. But, you know, the one thing I would like to say also is that conflict in West African region seems fluid as the stakeholders in these conflicts are conveniently, they conveniently switch um, alliances based on their interests. So, like I said, you know, young people, it's a young continent, too many young people, um, they're poor, they don't have access to basic social services. And so they're easily recruited based on, you know, what opportunities are presented to them. It's, it's, it's a catch-22. Um, there's, there's one guy that I read about recently. Um, his name is Iyad Agali. He's a Malian. He's a Tuareg leader in Mali. Um, he's been, you know, in this conflict for quite a long time. Um, he was a mercenary in Libya and as a rebel, you are, and as a rebel in North Mali, his home country, as Agali worked as a hostage negotiator and a government counselor in Saudi Arabia, unable to take the leadership of the secular national movement for the liberation of Azawad in Mali also in 2011. He founded his own jihadist group mm. that is called Ansadang. So, you know, the conflict in Mali presented an interesting dynamic because in 2019, it is one unique organizations were involved in the conflict. Think about it. Just, you know, Mali alone have 81 different groups involved in the conflict, either as a perpetrator or a victim, including six railroad groups, nine violent extremist organizations, 34 militia organized around communal ethnic 
ethnic um ethnic grounds. The whole thing about conflict in, in West Africa, I feel is always around, you know, communal, ethnic, religious, you know, lines. And those things are the reason why we're struggling also on the continent because we become so beholding to our our ethnic and religious groups that we tend to ignore the diversity of the state and ignore the the um the issues of other people on the continent. And so when conflict starts, it becomes unnecessarily a problem because everybody wants to, you know, take the side, the issues with, you know, the effect of the conflict. And we create all these destructions. And then after the conflict, it's so difficult to build back. Liberia is still struggling right now to to rebuild since the conflict has been over. It's been close to 20 years since we ended the war, but we're still struggling with rebuilding that country. Of course, these are those things that, you know, capture my... um my breath in a sense that I still need to digest because it's very visual. I, whenever I hear that there is a conflict in a country, I mean, I don't see it as a news anymore. <laughs> I know. And, and I get worried when I don't hear any, because I know it's happening somewhere. It's just that the media is not there to yeah. cover. Um, so this, this brings me to the, to the other side story, when you mentioned that, well, whenever there are conflicts, some in a few groups take sides. Mm-hmm. And the key question, of course, is that why conflicts always uh, come and go. And some of them, they even come and stay and they just transcend to a different type of conflict. Uh, so, um, so, you know, I, I, I feel most of the conflict on the continent is about power. It's about agency. It's about, you know, authority. It's about, interest um you know when when someone is poor and they they don't have access they create the necessary environment to have access if someone feel neglected and feel marginalized they create the opportunity to be heard and that creation of the opportunity sometimes the african leaders don't pay attention to it and so that's why you know we're calling conflict the triggers there are signs that you're supposed to pay attention to when, when those things are happening. And when the leaders don't pay attention to those triggers, when the conflict happens, their ego is so strong to say, I want to negotiate with these people because they feel I'm running the state and I'm in charge of the military. And so I can just go ahead and fight. But sometimes if the conflict is forever, I mean, look around us. There are some countries in Africa where the conflict has been going on since before I was born. You know, and so it becomes the, the vulnerable people, you know, women and children and unarmed civilians become the victims of these different conflicts. Yeah. Well, still, this also, we, we've, we've been learning and discussing in, in conflict resolution um, and negotiations worldwide that, well, there are side markets in between. Um, I'm trying to now push you to the illicit trade that yeah. is going on. Yeah. The question there would be, how then do you analyze the, the roadmaps of illicit financial flows in, uh, in West Africa? Not necessarily in Africa as a whole, but just in West Africa. Who? So West Africa is a hotbed for IFF, illicit financial flow, because many of the countries in the region are considered low income where most of the economic activities take place outside of the formal sector. Um, and so when the government is unable to, to track what is happening economically outside of the banking and regulatory sectors, 
it creates an opportunity for someone who wants to involve in um, illegal arms deals, um, drug trafficking, um, all these different things. It creates an opportunity for them. And once they see it, they go into that kind of market. And they, you know, that's where they do all the transactions because they're able to clean the money in that kind of market easily. If, 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 a, if a person is involved in the illegal arms deal, you can go into a Liberian market because we have two currencies, like I said earlier, and most of our transactions, 60% of the transactions happen informally outside of the banking sector, outside of some sort of regulation. And so it's easier for them to tap into that kind of market and have these illegal transactions. And there's a report out there that this $50 billion of illegal financial flow happens on the, on, the, on the continent every year. Think about it. $50 billion every year. Mm. Yeah. Some sort of, you know, IFF transaction happening on the continent every year. It's interesting, but, you know, it's, it, you know, these, these informal, informal transactions ferment illegal and, and drug deals, like I said, as well as trafficking. Um, and West Africa suffers the most of it because most of our countries are, you know, low income countries, as they say. You, you mentioned some big number there, $50 billion. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Still digesting that because it's a lot. That is a case for the hidden debts that it's still under. It's on process in a court process in Mozambique of $2 billion, which caused an international, international scenario there, which uh, even the former finance minister is still in jail. And, mm. and there was a verdict now to be extracted to the U.S. Um, but now $50 billion, I wonder what the schematic actually is. Like, where is this movement of illicit trade taking place? Uh, do you have an idea how it goes on? Because I'm trying to imagine like what exactly is driving. I know you mentioned the arm deal, mm-hmm. but do you think, because it's a lot of money, so it might be multiple types of business going yes. on. Uh, so so let me, let me give you, you know, some examples of how these, these um, transactions take place. So for example, if um, an era in the UAE involved in some sort of drug transaction of some illegal activities, he's able to establish some sort of relationship in Liberia and say, let's open, let's open a makeshift pharmacy. We're selling um, painkillers and, you know, syringes and all these different things, right? So on the face of it, you see that this is a, le- a legit business that has been operated in, in Monrovia, in the capital city of Liberia. But in the back, when he shipped a container of Tylenol or, you know, syringes to his pharmacy, he's able to transport some other illegal substances with it, technically into Liberia, and they can go and, you know, sell those items right in Liberia. And that pharmacy can take that money and put it into the bank. And then his money is clear. So all he has to do is say, okay, I'm going to the bank to do some withdrawal. He has a claim money. He can do that with drug. He can do that with arms. There are times where they actually, if he has, for example, if the Arab or whoever that is outside of Liberia has, for example, $5 million in cash from some transaction that, he, that took place, he cannot deposit that money into, into a bank in Europe or in America or in, 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 in um, somewhere in the Middle East. He can't do it. 
So that money has to be transported to Liberia in a grip or in the bag. And it goes to Liberia and he's able to clean that money up and deposit that money into a bank in Liberia and get his money right back into, into a UAE. So those, you know, those different types of, you know, things happen in, in countries where the system is vulnerable, where people can, you know, easily, you know, tap on it. West Africa is, is, is a hot spot for, for those kinds of transactions. Yeah, well, it's uh, it strikes me whenever whenever I read reports about illicit drugs, it's yeah. it's yeah. a lot that it's going on, and I even learned that in some it, regions, it, it stifles development. It, it, you know, it takes away um, the opportunities that young people could benefit. Imagine if fifty billion dollars investment was done in West Africa in rules and electricity. I mean, I can just imagine how many young people will have jobs, opportunity. You know, they will be able to start up a internet cafe, for example, that can, they can sustain themselves and live on it. But, you know, because there is no basic social services, people will definitely get in, you know, suitcases and get on a, sh- on a ship and go to Europe or, or come to America. Do you think we have some future there to tackle the illicit trade it, or illicit financial flow? The only way that can be tackled is for our local governments, our West African, quote-unquote, African governments, mm-hmm. to start to formalize these informal businesses. If So you see how in America, nobody walks around with cash, right? America is basically a cashless society. Everything is done online, right? Everybody has some sort of ATM in a pack, in a uh, debit card in a pocket, right? We need to encourage that on the continent. Because the more we take money, physical cash from people's hands and leave that responsibility to the banking sector, we are eliminating the possibility of physical cash being in somebody's hands that they can easily clean up into your, into your country and move the money out. We need to encourage those, those kinds of transactions to happen. The other thing that needs to happen is to have strong regulatory institutions in place. I think one of the reasons why we're struggling on the continent also is that we have we have institutions in place that are considered anti-corruption institution or um anti-IFF, you know, institutions, but they're not, they don't have tooth to bite. You know, they're just institutions. Somebody's getting paid for doing nothing. But if those, if those institutions were strong enough and they can actually take actions, then we eliminate some of these, you know, barriers to economic growth. Oh my, this is a, I see we have a, quite a long path to, to walk. <laughs> yes, we are. Um, yes, we do. Yeah. I, and now this is quite some education there. Um, and I hope that, uh, the, the policymakers uh, in, in all the ranges are also listening, especially the, the, the financial sector within the, the governments, both the international levels, because I'm, I'm trying to, also see how interested the IMF is in this illicit uh, financial flows. How does it affect the, 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 the IMF and the World Bank? How- I mean, they, they've been involved. The IMF and, and World Bank and African Development Bank have, they've been, you know, investing into serious capacity building for, for some of these countries so that they can improve how they, they guide, um, you know, these illegal transactions, but, it's not enough. I think, you know, overall, 
we need a whole network of African countries coming together to network to try to fight this process. It's going to take a while, but I think we'll get there. Well, okay, because we were discussing about the, the poverty scenario in, in West Africa and then the illicit financial flows, and we, we mentioned partly conflicts, which are all um, aspects of the same web. Now, there have been um, a rainflow of development uh, international, both national organizations who are doing their best to contribute with partly reducing the poverty levels and pushing the countries to get up high into the economic growth. That's why when, when you, that's why I brought the question of illicit f- flows because mm-hmm. I was aiming at also mentioning the IMF, the World Bank, and then you also mentioned the, mm-hmm. the, the African regional banks. Um, a key question there is because of the critiques that came along. What arguments could you make about development programs under the critique that most of it has not delivered its promise, or at least not to the people at the end of the line? So this is what this is what I think about this whole <laughs> development. I'm a fan of Dambisa Moyo. I don't know if, if, if you heard of her. Of course, of course. Is, How couldn't I? There you go. So I I, I feel when I read her book about that aid, about the way it has affected Africa, I kind of sympathize with it. I, I totally support it. I, I feel like in the absence of, you know, this development aid to African countries, we will be far ahead when it comes to mechanized farming. I honestly believe that. The reason um, some of our governments are ignoring the competitive advantage that they have with agriculture is because they're still waiting on Europe, the African Union, um, the African Development Bank, the World Bank, the IMF, and all these development institutions to give them either budget support or give them some sort of you know um, development assistance that is supposed to target their development. But interestingly, we don't have a successful country that have you know, develop outside, you know, out of development aid. We don't have one country that we can point to and say this country has done well with its development aid that is so developed now that we are proud. Countries develop based on their taxes that they collect from citizens. We have to take that and see how we can expand our revenue base locally and develop based on that revenue. Most of us, what's happening on the continent is that most countries in Africa depend on development aid for their projects and then use their local revenue to pay civil servants and then, you know, support the government through, you know, whatever their recurring expenditures are. That is a problem because if you look at some of the country financial reports, it's, it's just, you know, recurring expenditure locally. But then when you look at the roles that they're building, the rules was out of bill by the World Bank or the IMF or, you know, the African Development Bank mm. or the combination of all of them. Liberia is a classic case. I know our energy project that, that we started off somewhere around 2012, 2011. Everybody, all the development partners supported that project. I mean, the, at least 80% of the project on the energy was, was supported by our development partners. And then 20% from the government. So it tells you that most of our revenue was just going to paying people and taking care of our recurring expenditures. You educated me 
but also gave me a few additional questions. Go ahead. Because um, what you say now it puts me back on the policy line. Mm-hmm. What is it there in place that actually guides this whole movement of whether development uh, organizations, as in aid or uh, foreign aid, yes, uh, development investors, um, both in from the country or, of course, most of them foreign. You you even mentioned the imports there. How does the complex policy and legal regional framework works in West Africa? So, so Leo, I, I, want, I want us to take this question and apply it to the entire continent because the okay. African continent has massive economic opportunity. There are 1.3 billion people on the continent. That is a huge market. I mean, think about it. A huge market. The continent is rich with natural resources, but we are unable to develop opportunities for our citizens. Ghana and and Africa's, those two countries combined, has more than 50% of the market share in chocolate, cocoa. Just, just two countries in West Africa, Ghana and Africa's. I'm talking about the entire world. Just those two countries has more than 50% of the market of cocoa. But they cannot detect the price of cocoa on the international market. That is a problem. So when you take the poverty rate of Ghana and Africa Coast, it means we're not serving the people well. There's, there's massive opportunity that needs to be harnessed on the continent. We need to look at, look at that from, from you know, the, nas- the holistic continental view. So when we put in place, imagine if Africa Coast and Ghana say, well, when it comes to cocoa, we're trading only in Africa because we have to be at a point where we decide how much each person buys cocoa on the market. We're not trading with nobody else besides African countries. Just think about that for one minute. That is a massive, massive shortage of coffee. That you love coffee that you're not be able to drink in at Brandeis. You're not going to be able to drink coffee anymore just because <laughs> Africa and Ghana is taking themselves out of the market. Well, but, I'll go back home when I have coffee. <laughs> there you go. That is the point. So we have to be able to see these things from the prism of a, you know, a continent of viewpoint. How is it that $4 billion Nigeria, why Nigeria, Nigeria can say the cars that we're going to buy is going to be right from the African continent? We're buying cars right here, $4 billion. Wherever company those $4 billion go to, they create opportunity for more jobs. They create opportunity for more people to be millionaires. The three richest people in West Africa has more money than the rest of the entire people in West Africa combined. Top three richest people in West Africa has more money than the entire uh, 400 million people that are combined together, all the resources combined together. Those three people have more money than everybody else. It says a lot about you know what is happening over there. So there is potential to make money. There is huge potential. I mean, think about our diaspora market. There's so many of us in the diaspora now that are constructing these huge houses, you know, somewhere on the continent, whether it's Nigeria, Africa, Ghana, Mozambique, um, Malawi, wherever you're thinking about, these people are constructing these huge infrastructures. Um, there's a market there. Why are we not innovate, innovative enough to tap onto that market and say, well, we can provide financing for you. We can develop your, your, your structure from from the ground up, 
And then every year or every month, this is X amount of dollars, like, like mortgage. You pay every month to this company and they do all your construction and manage your property for you. Those are the opportunities that we need to start thinking about. We need to be creative on the continent. That's the only way we can reduce migration of young people living the continent. That's the only way we can, we can educate more people to be national, well, not nationalistic, but patriotic. Cause I don't like nationalism anymore. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a bad, you know, word for anybody that live, live in Africa. Um, but unless those things happen, we're not going anywhere. It's just going to be each of us talking about sovereignty and talking about how much money can the World Bank or the IMF or, you know, I think the one thing going to give us mm. to each of us, each of our countries. Um, I like the fact that, um, some Eastern African countries are doing well in opening up their borders to the neighbors and say, you know, come in and go out. You don't need visas. This, cause this is one of the biggest barriers that we also have movement on the continent. People cannot move easily. It is the most difficult travel experience in the world. It's on Africa where people move from one country to another. It's so difficult because you need visa to go from Liberia to Kenya. In some instances, you have to go to Europe before you go to Kenya because you don't have any direct flight going to Kenya. Oh, gosh. So those are some of the terrible experiences that is, but there is, there is potential to make money, you know? Well, I, I would ask you where, where, where to start, but you, you have said quite a lot. Let me <clears throat> maybe um, start narrowing it down to a closure looking at, because you mentioned it quite well, that let's look at the continent as, as, as a whole. Mm-hmm. Uh, although you, you presented um, quite evidently uh, factors from West Africa and you pinpoint, and you made this holistic view that, well, West Africa is not going to be West Africa, a successful story if the rest of Africa is not doing the same. Um, I want to provoke you mm-hmm. into <laughs> thinking, because you, you are the one who puts yourself into this trap of thinking Africa as a holistic. Any words on the agenda 2065 of oh the African Union? <laughs> just to see, <laughs> just to, <laughs> just oh. to see how, yeah, how the regional efforts comply. This is, this is where you don't want to hear my view about the African 2063 thing. I, I feel it's, it's, it's a cliche. This is, this is my view. I feel <clears throat> there's no way we can talk about the Africa that we want because that, that is the, the theme right there about Agenda 2063. We cannot talk about the Africa that we want in the midst of poverty and you know, migration and trafficking and, you know, IFF, you know, illicit financial flows, you know, those kinds of things. We cannot talk about the Africa we want in the absence of addressing some of those immediate needs um, across the continent. We have to talk about, we have to make sure, okay, forget about all of the things I just talked about. Forget, forget those things. Forget those things. We'll try. The African Union is run by the European Union. So bulk okay, of break the that down. yeah bulk of the support that the African Union required to operate financially comes from the European Union. So we're still in this colonial mentality about how we operate on the continent. If the African Union cannot be as independent and operate financially independent by itself, how can you talk about an agenda that is so aspirational about the Africa that we want. 
It can be the Africa that we want because Europe has an influence in it. America has an influence in it. You have all these different countries. Israel now is interested in being a member of the African Union because that's the influence they want on the continent. China has taken you know, a significant portion of our, our resources and the return that we get out of it is, is infinitesimal, it's, 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 it's negligible. So we can't be talking about the Africa that we want in the absence of having, you know, to address some of the barriers that creates economic opportunity for the everyday person, smallholder farmers. These are people that would drive economic growth. If governments start to pay attention to smallholders small hold, small on farmers, you see how tremendous things will turn around from some of those countries. We've seen some of the evidence of it, but it has to be done in a way that people know that if they farm, there is guarantee that the products will be purchased and will get money out of it. Because that's the incentive. Do you think um, what is stopping the African Union from moving forward is the African is the European Union? I just want to get no, the African Union. It's not stopping the African Union from moving forward, but it's influencing how the African Union operates. So why is it that we have dictators, we have um, authoritarians, we have um, corrupt leaders that are in power in Africa? Why is it that the African, Union, the African Union cannot say, well, the reason why country X is, is struggling to catch up is because they have corrupt leaders. And so we need to make sure that we don't leave them behind. To bring them up to pile, we need to hold those leaders accountable because the leaders are failing and the people are also dying. A failed leader creates an opportunity for more poor people and more people that don't have access to healthcare, education, security, transportation, you know, stuff like that. So unless we fix those things, the African Union cannot be seen as independent because they are influenced heavily by the European Union. Maurice Cromer, I thank you for your for making the time. I know you you have quite a schedule. So it's, I'm, I'm always you know, excited about talking about the issues on the continent. I feel there are more um, young people that are enterprising and that are also interested in seeing change happen on the continent at, at different levels. The one thing that is missing is to have all those people in one network. If that happens, we'll see a tremendous amount of change happening all across the continent. And it's going to happen. It's going to happen soon.